0: This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for designated investment business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, 17th of August. With me today have Andy Lee. Andy founded Parallaxes Capital in 2017. Previously with Lone Star and Citigroup, Andy founded Parallaxis to invest in a little-known and even less understood asset class called Tax Receivable Agreements, or TRAs. In 2017, Andy estimated that market to be at $8 billion. Now the total addressable market is now closer to $30 billion. Andy, good afternoon.
1: Pleasure to be with you today.
0: As I do with most of my guests, shall we Shall we start with some background? I mean, am I right in thinking you went to college at the age of 15?
1: Yeah, um, I was really lucky far that I had the option to go to college a little early. Um, and so when I graduated, it was early too. Um, here in the U.S., on this side of the pond, you're not legally allowed to sign a contract until you're 18. And so when I graduated, I was 17 with an offer to go to Citigroup, um, at which point of time, my dad refused to sign my lease in New York City and required me to go pursue an advanced degree, ideally a Ph.D., Um, my entire family as academics. And being a rebellious child, I refused. Unfortunately, given that he had effectively parental consent, um, I ended up having to do a master's and I did a master's in taxation of all things.
0: Okay, so what drove you to do a master's in taxation? Just because
1: Yeah, there were two primary reasons, just to be frank. The first of which is a a no coursework participation, whereby you didn't need to show up to class in order to get a grade. And two, an open book examination at the end of the year. As you can probably tell that was an absolute godsend for someone who didn't really want to go to school.
0: So so a year a year doing a a master's and then old enough to go and work at Citigroup and the office still stood?
1: Yeah. So I went to City and MA, and that's really where I guess the head of the my group basically came out and said, Andy, don't you have a master's in taxation? You're gonna work on this transaction. I was like, it's not quite what the paper is printed on, but he didn't care. Um I ultimately worked on a transaction between a issuer um Real Tinto, as well as Cloud Peak Energy, a coal business here in the U.S. that had spun up from the major that was looking to buy back the RTRA. And I said to myself, this is a fascinating asset class and someone should provide third-party liquidity to it.
0: Okay, should we, we just take a step back and talk a little bit more about tax receivable agreements, how they work and what they are?
1: Absolutely. And so a tax receivable agreement is very similar to what pharmaceutical royalties were in the 1990s, and what musical royalties were in the 2000s, whereby it was unseen, unheard, a what was otherwise a relatively novel asset class, and now it's pervasive in our society. The monetization of those otherwise long-dated annuity-like royalty streams, a tax receivable agreement, for all intents and purposes, is just a factoring arrangement between an obligor and a private investor like ourselves, whereby a, a business might not be in our portfolio, runs the likes of a Remax, a Shake Shack, a Duffin Phelps, oftentimes publicly traded obligors, um, in the here in the US, who are looking to otherwise monetize un, misunderstood tax assets. So think about it as a long dated um, income stream that we're effectively providing a factoring solution, delivering upfront proceeds today in return for more dollars over time. Okay, and then uh, how
0: how secure is that, is that stream of income for you as the, as the fund holder or, 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 the, or the purchaser of these TRAs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We typically invest in investment grade to near investment grade businesses. And so, from a leverage profile perspective, think about them as a two and change leverage, EBIT, um, EBIT, debt to EBITDA kind of business. One mm-hmm. and two, from a um, loan to value perspective, something in the twenty percent zip code. So, a relatively low attachment point relative to other private credit strategies might that be the likes of direct lending, among others, who typically attach closer to the fifty to sixty percent LTV level.
0: And then, do most companies in the U.S. have a have a TRA ability? What 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 would strike a tax receivable agreement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It has been growing in adoption. Today, there are call it two hundred of these living in the public markets. So, relative to the overall public stock of four thousand publicly traded companies here in the U.S., call it a five percent adoption rate among businesses that are in the SMIDCAP zip code, that gets you closer to a 10% um, adoption rate. That number has grown over time, primarily driven by a number of factors, um, and that is on the back of the rise of private capital, private equity investors driven by the need to innovate as well as the increased value to their underlying stakeholders, might that be pensions or endowments, have been seeking to monetize these otherwise misunderstood assets away from public investors in order to accrete value to their stakeholders.
0: Understood. So how, how would a company come about having a, a TRA? Can you give a case study or an example? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Here in the U.S., um, we have a structure known as an upc, which is a tax structure, Um, that many private equity firms have adopted uh, for their portfolio companies. This structure allows them to effectively create upon the company going public an avenue to increase tax savings um, to them. This, however, is something that's not appreciated by public shareholders, the rationale for which is most public shareholders here in the U.S., have migrated away from active towards passive investment strategies. Mm -hmm. These passive investment strategies are very metrics oriented and are very focused on, among other things, valuation metrics that are very standardized. Might that be the likes of an EV to EBITDA multiple or a price to earnings multiple, neither of which really capture the value of tax assets which really have a impact on more so free cash flow than any of the above metrics. Um, The reason passive flows don't really capture that value is because it's difficult to standardize, among other things. One, asset intensity, which has an impact on CapEx. Two, um, the aspect as it pertains to changes in working capital. And finally, the tax characteristics that a company might be able to deliver their public shareholders, all of those factors result in. Tax assets being misunderstood and oftentimes very little value ascribed to them. As a result, private equity firms have effectively been extracting it for themselves via what is known as a tax receivable agreement, and by doing so, um receive these long dated cash flows from the now publicly company uh public company portfolio company of theirs um that is payable over time
0: okay okay i think that's a, a great intro so so let's go back to city so you, there you were at city you worked on a rio tinto deal and what happened next
1: yeah i said to myself that this was a fascinating asset class um that that likely will grow in adoption given some of the incentives um, from a private equity um, and the growth of private capital in our industry to this move away from active to passive, which would further exacerbate the misunderstanding on the part of valuation. And finally, the growth of the understanding of the asset class driven by leading law firms, as well as the big four here in the U.S., who are constantly looking to be accretive to their private equity um, clients. Knowing that, I went to a firm called Lone Star Funds down Mm -hmm. in Dallas, Texas. Lone Star has a culture and philosophy that is very focused on, among other things, innovation. And so I was basically told that I was the only way to get promoted in the group that I was in was to create something. What we were able to ultimately do was create tax receivable agreements in two portfolio companies that we took public here in the U.S., and subsequent to that, the firm said, how do we go about deploying capital against the opportunity set? Um, we put out a business plan and I brought it to investment committee. And the firm said, "How much can you deploy on an annual basis?" And I said, thinking it was a large number, 150 million US dollars. The firm basically got la- I got laughed out of the room. Um, given that the firm today is encroaching on north of 100 billion dollars in AUM, 150 barely moves the needle from a deployment perspective. And so several of the partners basically said, "Andy, one of you go do this. We'll give you money to go do it. And if it doesn't work out, you can come back in two years." With that, um, I left in 2017 to launch Parallaxis.
0: So actually, when we spoke on the prequel, you mentioned another idea that you had for, for your Lone Star product, which I thought was quite ingenious. So do you want to sort of chat, chat through that? Yeah,
1: happy to. Um, so it was a off the cuff um, investment strategy whereby if you thought that drones were inevitable in our future, that you would decide to seek to buy all the air rights around the Hudson. Um, Such that in the day that drones became economical, that you would charge a toll whenever the likes of Amazon or Bezos decided to fly a drone across to Manhattan to deliver packages and creating effectively a toll road like um, economic business model. Unfortunately, the firm said that's a phenomenal idea. We can probably procure these error rights um, relatively cheaply today. Um, but when's our first dollar of distributions or return of capital? I said, ah, what do I know? Ten years, and the firms that—that's not possible. Um, the yeah. amount of air rights that we would have to purchase and procure, um, and to wait ten years for our first dollar back would just be ins—insurmountable from a institution-building perspective. And so that, that idea, while fascinating, unfortunately went away
0: no that makes a lot of sense then but but interesting nevertheless so talk me through Parallaxis. what's what's the structure who do you have working with you uh, yeah, how much uh, how many assets do you have in the management how do you deploy them and you know, i get, i guess does the does the fund pay yield is that the is that the sort of main core strategy
1: absolutely so we today run four flagship funds um primarily close ended vehicles um our first fund actually is a 21 year fund which is you probably appreciate is a re- relatively long vehicle um, that said we have migrated to shorter dated vehicles given our ability to achieve a number of things um, might that be the likes of securitization and access to that private credit market um, as well as we hope to in due course be able to access both a rated transaction as well as a public ABS markets here in the US. There are a number of factors um, that ultimately inform our capital sources, Um, but what our investors are seeking is first and foremost a uncorrelated return that is cash yielding in nature and serves as an effective call option on what is otherwise corporate tax rates here in the US. Mm-hmm, Just yeah. to frame it, we actually are at decades low um, as it pertains to our corporate tax rate here in the US. I mean, if you were to take a guess, what percentage of US federal revenues do you think corporates represent today? Uh, 10%. Hey, you're not far off. That's a great guess. It's 6%. Okay. Um, we live in a time in society where many would say that corporates need to carry bear their fair share. Um, and so in that regard, there are many here in the U.S. that would say it is not a if, it's a when, that corporate tax rates would increase. And so our investors view us as a tail risk hedge relative yep. to the rest of their portfolio, such that when corporate tax rates would go up, that the rest of your portfolio may see some level of a drawdown, while we will have a positive correlation relative to that outcome.
0: That makes sense, actually. So, so an increasing
1: tax regime is actually beneficial for, for you? Absolutely. What we do today is in the private format, though over time, um, as we've done in the credit market, we are looking to migrate into the public markets following what is otherwise our North Star Royalty Pharma um, that has been able to list here in the US. They have a sister company uh, on the UK on the in the income trust format, um, and that we are trying to replicate in order to achieve um, access to capital, um, both in the private and public formats that would enable us to grow. Um, look, and tax is the one thing that people fail to understand. It is the largest asset class in the world that people have never heard of. Mm -hmm. It permeates our society, might that be in sales tax, um, property taxes, corporate taxes, individual taxes. I mean, out on your side of the pond, you have VAT taxes among others. There are many avenues that this technology that we're describing, that TRAs bring to bear can be expressed. What we do today is really just a tip of the spear of what the broader opportunity set may look like. How much
0: market education do you need to do for your your corporates that you approach?
1: Um, There's a good amount of evangelism and education that needs to occur. For many of the firms that we've engaged with, it's helping them understand the solution set that we bring to bear as well as a misunderstanding on the part of public equity investors that we need to educate them on. And so I think over time, that has become easier, um, given the number of the brand names that we have worked with here in the US, that people are like, this is, if someone else, if IBM has done it, then we should do it too. It becomes a lot easier. And the more case studies and proof points that we're able to bring to bear, the better in that regard, Um, but that just takes time. And so what we do today is in the public format, over time, our goal is to migrate into the private side of the business and over time into ancillary opportunities whereby we can deploy incremental pockets of capital. But life is a crawl, walk, run. You're not gonna get there overnight. Um, It's been a series of educational conversations.
0: I mean, do you have enough pipeline but if you had the assets, you'd be able to deploy them?
1: Yeah, I think there is, up to your point about education on what you're describing as the supply side, the demand side of the equation is also in the educational process, um, whereby might that be the likes of VAT tax refunds or property tax liens here in the US, they have grown from an um, a understanding perspective but it is what is otherwise a relatively nascent asset class that will coalesce from a capital formation perspective in time. Um, We've been able to raise a good amount of capital in the private format, though our goal is to be able to broaden our investment mandate over time. um, And relative to our investment opportunity, that just requires a significant amount of education. And as we are able to gradually over time kill risk, and what is that? Namely, the deployment of capital into attractive transactions, the return of capital to prove out out these on attractive transactions for people to see the proof in the pudding. That would allow for incremental capital formation uh, on the, the demand side of the equation, but that just requires time. And so, relative to our broader investment opportunity, the capital formations of the, the business has yet to fully form around that. that but that's coming. Um, A number of thoughtful investors, pensions, endowments, defined benefit plans, among others, that are forward leaning first adopters, have started coalescing around the opportunity. But there are a number of things that we, um, as stewards of this nascent asset class, need to do in order to put their appropriate parameters Mm -hmm. and guardrails in place in order for them to be able to take that next step.
0: I mean, obviously, you mentioned pharmaceutical royalties. Uh, music royalties, which the London market understands well, mining royalties in Canada has has always has been a thing for a long time. So, so this is ironically sort of tax royalties, isn't it? It's not it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just reinventing the wheel in a different asset class. Absolutely. And so, is anyone else doing this? Is there? Do you have much competition for transactions?
1: Yeah. Today, competition is challenged for a number of reasons that I can go into, Um, but our space really lacks intellectual capital, Um, and the way I might describe it is there are really five barriers to entry in what we do. Um, The first of which is domain expertise, whereby deal professionals here to work tax, they literally close their eyes, plug their ears, and run away. Um, Tax professionals... Rarely, if ever, speak English, and so we somewhat sit on an intersection of mm-hmm. the two and bringing that expertise to bear. Two is around the opportunities that whereby the duration of these assets are relatively long life versus your traditional private credit fund or ABS fund, which are three to five to seven years in length, whereby these assets may live for ten to fifteen years, and that can be very challenging. Is a second challenge the third challenge that i would posit is around the go to market and the required and requisite education of that market that needs to occur um it's not a broker opportunity set, and we can go into that and explain why but that re- educational requirement versus what most private credit funds are oriented towards, which are a desk related relationships whereby they are able to build relationships with investment banks or directed origination whereby with private equity firms where a financial sponsor guy may know 10 firms incredibly well. The sourcing of these are widespread and require a significant amount of education, what most firms are not well set up to pursue. The fourth is primarily around deal size. The average deal is in a $25 plus million zip code, and so it makes it challenging for private credit firms who may have that up uh, may have that sourcing and capabilities. They don't want to pursue $25 million deals. They want to pursue $250, $500 million transactions, not $25 million. And the final thing is if you are able to occur, um, overcome all four of those elements, The fifth is around the return expectations for this opportunity, given that they are originated against investment grade, near investment grade businesses. It becomes a question of brain damage and return on um, time, where many firms are incredibly challenged by um, as to their expectations of what they can achieve from this uncorrelated asset class, which is attractive to their investors, but also against the relative to their business models. Do they want to expand the brain damage to um, originate, underwrite, build that expertise and pursue this transaction, these transactions. That's at least the biggest roadblock that lack of intellectual capital is actually very challenging because it results in minimal innovation um, in what we do today and what the broader opportunity set can Baltimore bring to bear.
0: Is there a lot of innovation? I mean, does technology play a big part of your business? I mean, is there, I guess tax is very rules-based, so technology should be able to play some part in this.
1: Um, look, technology is rife in everything that we do, right? Um, so, look, in time, that will come. Um, the underwriting of these assets likely will be the first avenue that will get affected by technology. Um, on both the credit side of the business as well as the tax um, side of the business that would help the growth of this overall opportunity set because it allows for standardization of the underwriting, which is helpful from both an origination perspective, one, but also an understanding perspective on the capital formation side of the business. The challenge that is obviously difficult is um, the need to originate these Opportunities um, in the private context, given that they are bilateral transactions, that um is an element that technology may be a little challenge in the near term to overcome. And then if we look briefly at the risks,
0: I mean I guess a change in the tax regime must be a risk, I guess, because it's so so, so long duration. But what Absolutely. other what are yeah, three what forms what of risks that yeah. we
1: manifest as a strategy. The first that you identify identify correctly is around corporate tax rate risk. Whereby we're effectively taking a macro um, call on what is the corporate tax rate today, 21% here in the U.S. To the extent that that goes down, we have a linear relationship. In the same way that if it was to go up, that we are beneficiaries of that. The second risk that we very much focus on is around credit risk. Um, Hands all focus on investment grade and near investment grade businesses. Um, we're very focused on the, the going concern value of their businesses and their business profile um, hence why we don't really focus on as much what i might describe as technology businesses insofar that those are ripe for disruption versus your traditional um business services or uh, intellectual capital kind of business and the third element that is the most pernicious in our business is actually extension risk what that describes is instead of getting paid today you might get paid in a year um, you never one aspect about our asset class is you never lose a tax asset you merely defer it so if you are unable to use it this year you would defer it for another year and so long as you ultimately do get paid your moic remains constant your irr obviously being a time-weighted measure, has, sees a level of impact from it. Yes. And so yeah, those means. are some elements that I might suggest bring to bear and um, our unique to our asset class from a risk perspective.
0: So talk to me a little bit about your team. Who have you got working with you?
1: Yeah, we have been going from more generalist individuals in the firm towards building towards specialists. Um, as we look, as we are looking Uh, and moving individuals from the former into the latter. And so we have individuals from the likes of a Primera, as well as a General Electric, um, on the business side of the equation, to on the legal side, we have individuals from um, the likes of a Wachtel or Paul Weiss, as well as the likes of a PwC on the accounting side of the business. And so those are all different go-to-markets, different avenues that we seek to express ourselves. Unlike a traditional fund business, we actually divide our business into two prongs. The first of which is product, and the second is um, go-to-market. So I view our, what some might in the traditional investing sense, um, describe their investment teams as our product teams. And then our go-to-market, which is focused on market education. As well as the old transaction to be our go to market efforts. and so we've somewhat divided those two um into various businesses with various different incentives in order to keep them relatively independent and achieve the outcomes that we seek to bring to bear and the value prop um for our investors okay and
0: then what's the what's the aim for the fund and the company and and where do you where do you see this going in sort of three to five years' time?
1: yeah. Absolutely. Our North Star looks and feels like what Royalty Pharma is here in the US, a publicly traded business with Enterprise Valley, Franchise Valley, um, with a large portfolio to the likes of a hypnosis on the other side of the pond that owns the major records. We have, in order for us to achieve that, there are a number of things that we need to do. The first and foremost is to achieve scale. Two is to demonstrate our track record and ensure that people understand the value propositions that we are able to deliver their portfolios. And the last aspect is market education and awareness. Um, And hands a big push on our side to ultimately achieve one-to-many conversations. Might that be the one that we are having here today with you and your audience, Um, for them to be better educated about the overall opportunity set to understand the value propositions, but ultimately for us to grow awareness and adoption.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. As my regular listeners know, Andy, I like to finish with three specific questions. So I'm going to take one at a time, if that's all right. Your greatest inspiration and/or mentor. There are a
1: number of different individuals um, that have been tremendous in my career growth and trajectory. I think there is one individual that comes to mind more recently um, that has inspired me to move to greater heights. Um, He runs a firm called One Rock Partners um, that has recently built out a UK presence. His name is Tony Lee. He's an Asian-American who came out of a Japanese firm called Ripplewood. And um, he's an inspiration on a number of fronts. One, for him being hard-charging. But two, ultimately, his ability to inspire his team but also others to be able to perform at a level higher than where they are today and his ability to push them inspire them and ultimately drive those outcomes are things that I very much admire primarily because and I think this relates to some of the other questions that you've shared with um that you have with your um other guests um ultimately when you're a leader of an organization you're not only selling your stakeholders like that be your investors. You're also selling your employees, um, your partners in your firm, your portfolio companies to ultimately achieve outcomes that might be challenging, but you're ultimately selling them in the same way that you are selling your kid on eating vegetables in the morning to your wife on marrying you. You have to sell, you're constantly selling, um, telling a narrative, being a storyteller, driving. Um, people to do things they may not otherwise want to do and with the goal of reaching a greater outcome. That's great. And then a book which has inspired you. A book more recently that has come front and centre is Secrets of a Sales Coach. Um, I think that has been something that as we've grown up as an organisation, it's no longer that I'm a individual contributor, but I'm also trying to create leverage for our efforts as a firm, and helping others to reach that next stage of their careers in order to grow and become more senior. Helping them understand that they are selling their stake, um, their people that work for them, and help teaching them to do those tasks, but also helping them appropriately drive outcomes. Um, those that's something that finance has actually been. I'm sure you and your listeners well know, has been very challenged by whereby we just expect people to see monkey see monkey do. But oftentimes um, there is a level of iteration from a training, be app- ensuring that they have the appropriate mindset, but also validating that training and ultimately coaching them to be better than where they were. Um, and that's a graduation of things that I don't know if I was necessarily well trained in that regard. Um, but something that I've been trying to build us and our institution to be a, uh, constantly growing in that regard. Mm -hmm. I think
0: it's very important if you're a business leader and a leader of people, you're quite right. You need to, you need to create that culture, don't you? And bring those people with you on, on the journey. Everyone is important in your company on this journey.
1: Absolutely. And that's in a big investment because I'm sure you're a phenomenal individual contributor. Um, but in order for you to go further, you need people to provide you some level of leverage. And there's a J curve associated with that underlying investment, where in the near term, it's going to affect your capability, um, your production from an individual contributor perspective. But by doing so, you are able to be the sum of those efforts are significantly greater than where you are by yourself.
0: Exactly right. It's a greater than the sum of the parts, isn't it? That's the whole. That's the whole aim. The company wants to be. What piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps?
1: I think the one piece that I've learned over time, and this was not clear to me when I first started my career in finance, is that go to market Trump's product. And what am I describing there? Most finance professionals are incredibly comfortable sitting behind a Bloomberg, behind a desk, working in an Excel model. But that's not ultimately what gets deals done. That doesn't help build relationships. And you might have the best track record in the world. But if you're not out there telling your story, investors, public, private or at large, aren't going to understand what you're bringing to bear, your value proposition. And so you need to bring them along with you in that journey via a constant communication, B helping them understand your value proposition and ultimately see having an understanding of your product, um, whereby I think what you ultimately see with some of these leading investment firms, oftentimes their founders are phenomenal storytellers. Um, And that's not something that you learn as an analyst or associate, you're taught to put your head down and grind. just needs to be better perspective in that regard as to every senior job is a sales job. Like, yes, you need to be good at what you do, but just as importantly, you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to sell. And that's something I wish I learned earlier in my career.
0: Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess right. Because straight out of college, you are a you know, first year analyst or associate, and you are, you're, you're in front of the screen grinding out your models. But actually, yeah, the sooner people realize that selling, it's like life there generally, isn't it? You're putting yourself forward and putting yourself at the front and being able to articulate and communicate uh, is very, very important, very important. Absolutely.
1: I mean, to my example earlier, whereby as a, when, even when you're young, you're selling a girl on going on a date with you. You're selling your associate on why they should introduce a profile of a target company they might not otherwise have had in the book. You're selling... Your MD on why did she take you to a meeting and how you're going to be accredited to it. Those are all small sales, but ultimately they lead to opportunities on a bigger platform, uh, on a bigger stage for you to ultimately rise to that occasion um, when the time comes.
0: Exactly right. Just think, had you not done your master's in tax and then told people and sold your master's in tax internally, you wouldn't have found out where you are today, really.
1: Absolutely. So life takes many funny turns in that regard.
0: It does indeed, Andy. Thank you very much today. I've got one final question. How can listeners get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, um, I've been somewhat trying to build out and interact with people more so on LinkedIn above all things. So Andy Lee at Parallax Capital um, would be great to meet many new people and always trying to learn new things um, and explore new avenues.
0: Brilliant, Andy. It's been a great afternoon. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you for your time. Be well.
0: Thanks for listening to A Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.